Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. Great opportunity to be able to be with you from South Dakota. We're in temporary studios here in Wilmot, South Dakota. I'm going to be Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday at the Zion Community Church. Well, in fact, that's not true because we will not be at the church. The church is sponsoring this prophecy conference, but instead we have had so much response out here. We're moving the meeting over to the Wilmot Community Center. That's where the meetings will be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, and Tuesday night. Pastor Casey Smith is so excited about these prophecy meetings that are going to be taking place. Hope you can come and join us. Love to have you to participate as we study the prophetic word of God. We've got our six broadcast partners all lined up around the world, ready to go to them to find out information covering current events in light of biblical prophecy so you can understand the times in which we are living. We're going to go to Ken Timmerman first. Ken covers geopolitical activities for us. And Ken, let me begin by talking about the positive tests on the president and the first lady for coronavirus. What are your thoughts? I mean, I know the stock markets around the world have started to tumble. Give us some thoughts from your perspective on this news about the president contacting coronavirus. Well, you know, Jimmy, this is what's called the luck of the draw. The president has been out there campaigning. He's been out in public. He has been uh, exercising social distancing. He's been pretty clear about that. But it's the luck of the draw. You can't, it's hard to control a, a virus. And I think, you know, this certainly comes at a terrible time for his campaign. We can only hope that he remains asymptomatic. So far, the early reports are that he's been asymptomatic. We'll have to see how that develops. But I would imagine that the White House doctors are going to put him on a regimen of a therapeutic drug, such as hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and an antibiotic, which he, he took earlier in May when apparently he was also exposed to coronavirus. I understand that as he does take that alternative possibility for taking care of the coronavirus, everybody's going to be watching to see exactly what does happen. Well, let's get to other news around the world quickly. Iran's terror is going to be ramped up in Bahrain. They're going to raise this terror to a peak in efforts to try to stop the peace agreement between Bahrain and Israel. What do we know? Well, you know, the Iranians have had a long-standing campaign against the predominantly Sunni government in Bahrain. Remember, Bahrain at one point was part of Iran. It was the Shah of Iran who allowed them to become independent in 1970. So there's a long attachment between Iran and Bahrain. There's a big Shiite minority in the country. The Iranians have long infiltrated that Shiite minority. They have controlled the community through the mosques the same way that Khomeini controlled Iran before the revolution. There has been an on-again, off-again terror involvement of the Iranian regime in Bahrain to destabilize the Bahrain monarchy. Now, clearly, they're going to step up those efforts because of the peace deal. The Bahrainis have been getting an awful lot of help, though, over the past couple of years from the United States and from Saudi Arabia. I wouldn't be betting heavily on Iranian success. I think that the Bahraini regime is probably going to manage to push back these efforts to destabilize Bahrain. Uh, But that is clearly the Iranian intention. They've said they want to do it. 
uh, and they have the resources on the ground to cause a great deal of trouble. And that's not the only warning that Iran is giving, not only to the Bahrainians, but as well to Israel and the United States. In fact, Iran's military leadership making the statement that they will be willing to join with any country that is willing to fight the Zionist regime in Israel and the United States. This is a pretty stark warning, is it not, Ken? Well, it is, Jimmy, and the Iranians have a great deal of resources militarily in the region. They have these militia groups in Iraq, in Lebanon, and in Syria. But at the same time, their foreign minister, Javad Zarif, announced just a couple of days ago in Tehran that the U.S. strike that took out Qasem Soleimani on January 2nd in Baghdad was like having their arm cut off. Iran today is like a country with just one arm, is what he said. So militarily, I think they have been damaged. They're stepping up the rhetoric, obviously. And here's another thing that they're doing that not very people have been talking about. They're stepping up their cyber activities, both against Iranian dissidents inside and outside of Iran, but also against the United States government. The FBI issued two absolutely astonishing white papers about Iran's cyber war against America just two weeks ago. Uh, and they listed the kinds of uh, high-tech companies, pharmaceutical companies, medical uh, institutions, U.S. government agencies that were being targeted by the Iranians had actually posted some of the programming language that the Iranians were using to take over computers in this country. So Iran does have uh, assets that are beyond conventional warfare, beyond terrorism as well to attack the United States, and I think you're going to see an uptick in addition to cyber activity. We've got to talk about this time, Ken, with our conversation, the activities unfolding almost in a full-fledged war between Armenia and the Azerbaijan. What's going on there? Well, this is a an obscure piece of real estate called Nagorno-Karabakh. They have been at war since 1988, the end of the Soviet Union. A week ago, the president of Azerbaijan launched an attack. The Armenians have claimed that a Turkish F-16 shot down one of their fighter planes, a Sukhoi-25, on Wednesday. The Turks deny that, and so do the Azeris. But there is a great risk, I should say, of escalation in this conflict, which just over the past week has already cost the lives of over 100 military personnel, let alone civilians. This area is also strategic because it's a hub for pipelines, oil and gas pipelines from Azerbaijan to Europe, up to Tbilisi in Georgia, where I was just a couple of months ago. And a third factor making this even more troublesome has been uh, reports from Vladimir Putin in Moscow and from Macron, the president of France earlier this week, accusing Turkey of bringing Islamist fighters in from Syria via the uh, southern uh, port of Gaziantep, or the southern area of Gaziantep, excuse me, in uh, southeastern Turkey. This would be a huge escalation to bring jihadi fighters into the battle to retake Nagorno-Karabakh from the Christian Armenians who live there and who have been governing there since 1988. This is a story we need to stay on top of, and we will do that with Ken Timmerman, of course as we have conversations with him right here on Prophecy Today. Ken, let me talk to you about Bashar Assad, his future, 
And seemingly, the Civil War, the nine-year-long Civil War, really could hinge on what happens in the U.S. presidential elections. What does that mean? That's the headline. Talk to me about the headline. Well, it could, Jimmy, because President Trump and the former Vice President uh, Joe Biden have very different approaches to Syria and Iran, because let's not forget that Syria is a client state of Iran. They are a client state of Iran and of Russia, of both of them. But the Syrians, Assad would not be in power today if it were not for the support of the Iranian regime and of the military support he's getting from Russia. And so the two presidential candidates, the president and, and Biden, have very different approaches. Biden would like to revive the Iran deal. He would like to uh, allow Iran to re-enter world commerce, to be able to trade in dollars, to be able to spread basically their evil around the world without being constrained by the United States. On the contrary, President Trump has been trying to contain and constrain Iran, put pressure on them, put pressure on the regime, while talking about helping the pro-freedom movement inside the country. He's trying to encourage the pro-freedom movement, whereas we know Biden, when he was vice president, put a damper on the pro-freedom movement. All of this will impact Assad and Assad's future. President Trump has said he does not want to have a footprint in Syria. He wants to bring U.S. troops home. Biden has said he will keep a U.S. footprint in Syria. Uh, To tell you the truth, nobody really knows what's going to happen to Assad after the election. I happen to think it's going to be far more important what happens with Russia and Syria and their relationship to Assad than anything the United States will be doing. You know, I think the exact same thing, Ken, and I understand that Vladimir Putin said that Russia is in Syria to stay for the long haul. Well, one more final thought I want to bring up to your attention. Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel was at the United Nations this week to speak, and he revealed that Hezbollah has a arms depot with additional possibilities of a massive explosion right there in the middle near the airport in Beirut. Give us the latest on that, and that will conclude our conversation. I must give credit to Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is a uh, media master. He has understood how to use an international platform such as the United Nations to make a very dramatic point on the world stage. He revealed these Hezbollah arms depots and missile factories right near the port. He showed pictures of them, and he showed where they were on the maps, and he appealed to the people who lived in this one neighborhood in Beirut called Jana. He said it's right next to the airport, and he says, look, folks, this is in your neighborhood. Hundreds of people died during the last explosion. It could happen again. Hezbollah cynically puts its uh, weapons depots and its missile launchers in civilian neighborhoods. They have always done it. It's like the Palestinians. They do not care about civilian lives. And I must give credit to Prime Minister Netanyahu for uh, taking the lid off of this and exposing Israeli intelligence publicly to help those people in Lebanon. You're absolutely correct. Netanyahu is a master communicator. And, of course, he loves the stage there at the United Nations. Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities for us at the broadcast table with us today. Ken, thank you so much. A great report. We'll talk again next week. Always my pleasure, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, David Dolan's standing by. He's got his Middle East news update for us. It's all ahead 
right here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. I want to remind you that I do have a website. It's prophecytoday.com. This is a full-service website. It will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. For example, I have a prophecy bookstore with a number of materials that will help you as you study through the prophetic passages of God's Word. I have a number of books, DVD documentaries, and audio series on the subject of Bible prophecy. I have a prophecy Q&A section, and then I list the top 10 news stories on a daily basis. These are news stories that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And I will give you a prophetic perspective on those news stories. That website that you should bookmark is prophecytoday.com. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today. We've got David Dolan standing by. He's at the broadcast table with his Middle East news update. You do not want to miss that. I'm here in temporary studios in Wilmont, South Dakota, way up here in South Dakota where you can hardly see anything except trees and grass and corn and cattle. It's an interesting place, and we're so thrilled for the opportunity to be here. We're going to be at the Zion Community Church. Actually, the church is sponsoring our prophecy conference for Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. But if you heard me in the last segment, I mentioned the pastor has been receiving calls from all over the countryside. People are going to be finishing up their farm work and headed towards the Wilmot Community Center. We've moved it from the church to the community center because of the response. We'll be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday and Tuesday night, and a prophecy Q&A each of the evening services before the service begins at 6 and or 7 o'clock on Monday and Tuesday. Come join us. K.C. Smith is the pastor. He says, please come and let's study the prophetic word of God. What a time in history for us to be doing exactly that. So we're looking forward to having you come. Well, David, standing by. Now let's go to the broadcast table for David. David, this is a time of the year in Israel 
when there's normally thousands of Christians coming from all across the world and joining with the Jewish people as they move into the seven-day celebration of the last of the Jewish feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. But because of the coronavirus lockdown in Israel and coronavirus around the world, not many Christians this year, but the Jewish people will still celebrate in their sukkahs, in their tabernacles or booths, will they not? Well, Jimmy, uh, first of all, let me just say that a little bird uh, told me that you turned 80 this week. So I just want to say uh, happy birthday to you and congratulations to joining a new decade. I thought that was kind of sounding old until I heard that it was also Jimmy Carter's birthday, but I think they said 96 for him. So <laughs> you've got a ways to go to reach that. But anyway, happy birthday. Jimmy, it's a, a very difficult holiday in Israel, obviously, because uh, the return of the coronavirus, it's actually much worse now than it was in April when they had their first round and shut everything down then. A leading rabbi is ill now, and others are being affected that are in the government and connected to it. Of course, uh, President Trump announcing that he and his wife have it, and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu sending them uh, greetings and saying that the nation of Israel will be in prayer for them. But a very, very difficult time. Sukkahs are being allowed, uh, private ones. Normally, many people would be going out and celebrating with a lot of other people as well as in their home sukkahs. But those have been banned, although a couple have been put up against the regulations in the Orthodox communities. And indeed, the virus is uh, double in its infection rate in the Orthodox Jewish communities, the ones that really are observant of uh, Sukkot in every way. So it's a different, and as you mentioned, the International Christian Embassy's Feast of Tabernacles has gone virtual, so people will still be able to uh, participate in that. But uh, the tourism ministry completely flat, the hotels mostly closed. So a very, very different uh, holiday period. One, as many rabbis have said, where reflection is more the case than celebration, where people are really uh, maybe turning back to God in many ways or crying out to Him because of the situation. So that's the silver lining behind the difficult days that, of course, not just Israel but the world are dealing with. And by the way, David, I think I know who that little birdie was that told you about that birthday. I'm not quite sure. No, yes, I am. I'm 80, and I can't believe Jimmy Carter is that much older than I am. Well, he's still alive. Maybe I have a little ways to go down the road. It's really not the age on the chassis. It's the mileage on the frame that counts. But <laughs> thank you for the greetings on my 80th birthday. Well, let's get back to serious business. Talk to me about Iran. They are giving a warning that any country who is ready to fight Israel, the Zionist regime, and or the United States, they will join and help. I mean, uh, the Iranians want to get together in alignment, it sounds like, which is sounding pretty prophetic, and try to destroy the Jewish state. Sound like that to you, David? Well, they continue on the warpath. There's no question about it. And uh, there is concern. I saw on Friday morning in some of the Israeli uh, newspapers, concerned by some of the experts, that the president's uh, viral positive tests may further add to the itching that's going on in Iran, the itching to get into conflict with America and with Israel. There's also been a rocket attack this week upon uh, in the north of Iraq that was traced to Iran. 
And, of course, right next door we have the war now raging between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Israel right in the middle of that because they've been selling weapons to Azerbaijan for, oh, quite a few years since the mid-2005-06 uh, uh, range. And, of course, part of the reason Israel's been doing that is because they're uh, Iran's northern neighbor, Azerbaijan, is a Muslim country, but one that's been sympathetic to Israel. But the Israelis also have ties with Armenia. So there's another opening there. Turkey's involved in that conflict. Iran could easily get involved directly as well. So just a very precarious situation, to say the least, Jimmy. And, of course, it's not new. We almost had a full war early this year, as we'll recall, when Soleimani was uh, assassinated by the United States, uh, the head of the Revolutionary Guards. And so tensions have been high ever since then. Hezbollah, of course, in Lebanon, continues to stockpile weapons and talk about war. So the Israelis just have to keep their eyes very wide open, and the, the days are very difficult in that uh, sense as well. Yes, it's always a dangerous neighborhood where the Israelis are living now in the state that has come back after a 2,000-year period of time. Talk to me, David. Are there any secret talks as it relates to the peace process in the Middle East going on now with either Syria and Israel or Israel and Lebanon? Do you know anything about that? Well, the talks between Israel and Lebanon are definitely going on and not secret. The Lebanese government has announced that they will participate in these U.S.-mediated talks. So I mentioned it last week when the news was just breaking, and uh, those will primarily focus on the underwater land under the Mediterranean Sea, I should say, the Mediterranean coast of Israel and Lebanon. And there's been disputes over who has what, because there's a lot of natural gas out there. So those are definitely going on. Whether those talks will expand to a possible peace between uh, Lebanon and Israel, a formal peace or not, we'll have to wait and see, but probably not because Hezbollah is so involved in the Lebanese government and the Lebanese scene, and they're very reluctant to see these talks go on with Israel at all. In fact, they've condemned them, but the majority of the Lebanese government is not under their sway, so they have to sort of grin and bear it. Between Syria and Israel, I would really doubt that, Jimmy. There may be some technical talks on very limited means, but really the Syrian government remains adamantly opposed to Israel, very much an enemy, and there's still military action going on periodically between the two sides. So I'd be very, very surprised if that were the case. However, of course, the U.S. continues to reach out to more moderate Arab countries to join the peace accord that the UAE and Bahrain signed with Israel last month at the White House. So those talks are going on basically in secret, as it were. They're, they're out of the public eye, but they are going on. Hey, David, I have two more articles I want you to comment on. Number one, I want to circle back to Iran and the threat they are on the, the state of Israel. The prime minister says that a preemptive strike against Iran and its nuclear development of a mass weapon of mass destruction is still on the table. What about that? Well, he made Iran again the focus of his talk at the United Nations. Of course, he wasn't actually at the United Nations. It was a virtual broadcast from Jerusalem, but he focused on Iran and told us uh, again that they are heavily into their nuclear program, that they might have bombs within just a few months. You mentioned that last week. So that is a real concern of Israel, Jimmy. And uh, I, I don't have the time to go into the details, but definitely Iran is pursuing that nuclear program very, very much, and Israel's got its eye very much on it. And also, I wanted to quickly grab your comment on 
The thoughts you may have about a third temple activist, Yehuda Glick, says he is running for president of Israel when Reuven Rivlin comes out of office. Do you think that's a possibility at all? Well, he'll run. I doubt if he would be elected president. And actually, the president is generally appointed by the prime minister, so you can go say whether you want to be president or not. But uh, we'll see. It's just another sign that the issue of the Temple Mount and a possible temple on it is uh, becoming more and more prominent in Israel and is becoming more of a political discussion as well as a religious one every day. And I'm sure that's the reason Yehuda Glick is considering trying to get maybe the Knesset to appoint him as president of Israel. David, always great information that you give us. Appreciate it so very much, my good buddy. Thank you. Stay well, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy, and another 80 years. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to bring Winky Madad to the broadcast table. David and I talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. I want a Jewish perspective on that. That's what Winky will give us right here on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here in Temporary Studios in a location known as Wilmot, South Dakota. It's a very small little community, uh, but I want to tell you we're looking forward to a great time of studying God's prophetic word. We're going to be with Casey Smith, who is the pastor of the Zion Community Church here in Wilmot, South Dakota. That's why I've set up temporary studios here. We're going to have meetings, and the meetings are not going to be actually at the church. They've decided because of the response of those who say they want to come here and study the prophetic word of God. We're going to move the meetings to the Wilmot Community Center. This is exciting. I'm looking forward to teaching the prophetic word of God for those who will come from all over the countryside here in South Dakota. If you're listening to this, you be sure to come Sunday all day, Monday and Tuesday in the evenings only, and we'll have a prophecy Q&A time before each of the evening services. We're located here in Wilmot, South Dakota, and the meetings will be held at the Wilmot Community Center. Well, let's go now to a broadcast partner. You know, when I have a concern about what's going on politically in Israel or militarily or whatever the need may be, I go to Winky Madad. 
When we go to Winky this time, we find Winky in the midst of three of the fall Jewish feasts. First day of the month of Tishri, the monthly Jewish month in the Jewish calendar, was Feast of Trumpets and Rosh Hashanah. And then on the 10th day of the month, you had Yom Kippur. Five days after that, actually beginning on Friday evening, that is the beginning of the day, which is Saturday, and we go into Feast of Tabernacles. So I thought I would talk to Winky, use this as an educational conversation, so our Christian friends could understand to the Jewish mind what Feast of Tabernacles is all about. Haksameach, Winky, and a great high holy days for you and your family and all of your friends. But let's begin, actually, by talking about Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last of the seven Jewish feasts that God gave the Jewish people in Leviticus chapter 23. But it's a very important feast day, especially for the Jewish people. Just tell us what is Feast of Tabernacles all about. Jimmy, we have, among the festivals that we have, we have three that we call pilgrimage festivals. In other words, when the temple existed 2,000 years ago and earlier, Jews, according to the Bible, according to the Torah, were commanded to come to Jerusalem on those three festivals, which is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and as you call it, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Booths. And so it is one of the three main joyous festivals. And it is very joyous, because actually the Bible says, and you shall be happy and joyful at that time. We even, in fact, look upon it as a commandment, that during this time we find joy in the life that we live. The major elements of it, for those who are unfamiliar Observant Jews, and less so, will be building booths or huts or uh, on the lawns, on their balconies, in which they would, at the very least, take all their meals during the seven days of the holiday. During the morning prayers, they will be also waving the palm frond and three other elements of nature, a citron fruit, a willow branch, and a myrtle branch, as we understand that's what the commandment is. And if it wasn't for the corona, we'd be having almost every night music and festival in which we would dance at either the synagogue or the Talmudical academies, the yeshivot, which we have. Well, I know that uh, right after Yom Kippur is over, in fact, even that evening, you start to build your sukkah, your hut, your booth, your tabernacle, whatever it's referred to as. And that's a very important process that needs to take place. Tell me, first of all, how do you go about building it, and why is it so key? Well, Jimmy, the minimum requirements are three sides of the hut in which it would be covered by material that is usually of wood, branches or all sorts of leaves uh, that are attached to wood, Nothing metal is used. It all has to be coming from nature. And uh, the walls either are covered with wood, like panels, I guess you would call it in English, or of a framework of some sort with a canvas or some other yuta type of material that surrounds it. So that basically what the commandment that we understand is move out of your house 
or as we'd say today in modern talk, get out of your own safe space and trust the Lord. Move out into a small element of nature in which the sun beats down. It might get hot, it might be cold. Of course, if it rains or anything like that, we're not commanded to be in it. And there are even a lot of people who will sleep in that booth during the seven days. And as I said, all of us will be taking all our meals there. So in a sense, it's like getting back not only to nature, but to God's rule over this world in which we place our trust in Him, if I can interpret it that way. And uh, one more aspect that some of the rabbis have found interesting, this is the only mitzvah, the only commandment, that you completely encircle yourself with. You're inside it completely. Everything else that you do, whether it's Shabbat or eating kosher, you know, keeping the dietary laws, all sorts of things, it's just a small part. This way you're completely inside the booth, covered with the branches, surrounded by wood or cloth, and you're enjoying yourself as one of God's loyal servants. I have heard you mention the word booth several times. I've used the term sukkah or tabernacle. But these are the ways that the Lord provided for the Jewish people in the wanderings in the wilderness to protect themselves, was it not? I mean, uh, they lived in a sukkah or a tabernacle or a booth through those 40 years of wandering, did they not? Yes, they did. And in fact, Jimmy, if you go to the Sinai Desert today, you will see a form of these booths that are made of palm fronds and other aspects of whatever they can collect. So it's not completely unknown as if it was something remarkable. Of course, we also have a sort of uh, esoteric interpretation that the children of Israel were followed by clouds of glory, and that also the booths symbolize that protection that the Lord gave the children of Israel on their wanderings throughout the 40 years in the desert. Winky, I know that on a normal year, not a time during the coronavirus pandemic in Israel, that Christians from all over the world would make their way to Jerusalem and participate in the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. That's not going to be the case this year. But as I read the other day through Zechariah chapter 14, that ancient Jewish prophet said that in the kingdom to come, when the Messiah is here, all people will go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So this particular feast has a historic significance, an agricultural significance for the Jewish people, but really an eternal significance, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Not only Zechariah, but Isaiah and other prophets have talked about the fact that when the temple is rebuilt on the Mount of Moriah, it is going to be a house of prayer for all peoples. I think in that we're very much different than many other religions that have been on that mount over the centuries that we lost our independence. But in another aspect, the amount of animals that are sacrificed in the temple when it was extant and the children of Israel did practice sacrificial worship of animals, uh, that number is 70. And our rabbis say that signifies or symbolizes the 70 nations of the world, which was the biblical term for everybody who wasn't Jewish during that period of time. And we do know that in certain circumstances, at certain times, Christians and 
other non-Jews could have sacrificed at the temple a specific sacrifice so that I think the idea of coexistence and and mutual understanding and appreciation one for another is also an element of the holiday. That's probably why it was chosen um, many years ago for all these marches and festivities that uh, we used to observe. Winky, you have been so helpful in allowing me to ask you these questions about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the last of the seven Jewish feasts, so that our Christian listeners might learn something about what's going on among the Jewish people in the world today. But in essence, what we all in the kingdom to come, when the Messiah is here, will be involved in the Feast of Tabernacles, according to Zechariah and Isaiah and other passages of Scripture. Thank you so very much, my good friend. Enjoy your time during the Feast of Tabernacles. Chak Sameach, my dear friend, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Jimmy, thank you very much for having on. I understand that you're having a birthday coming up, and so I wanted to wish you, in the biblical sense, as we say in Jewish custom, until 120, and that you should enjoy the family, and we can continue talking uh, for many years to come. That was so kind, Winky. In fact, number 80. And I do hope and pray that, as you said, I'll have a opportunity to continue to talk with you in years to come. God bless you, my friend. Talk again real soon. Jimmy, thank you for having me on. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Very interesting conversation with Winky Madad talking about the Jewish understanding of the Feast of Tabernacles, how they go about celebrating that seven-day feast, and then, of course, bringing in at the end Zechariah chapter 14, when in the time of the kingdom yet to come, every single person on the earth will go to Jerusalem for a celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Very prophetic in our conversation. Right now, though, we're going to change to another region of the world, the European Union, which is a key region. I do believe, and I do believe our broadcast partner, John Rood, believes that the European Union is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. This is a very important understanding as we look at the events coming up in the future. John, thank you for coming on board being at the broadcast table with us. Talk to me about Russia. They're making complaints that NATO's military operation is actively observing at their border what's going on. I mean, NATO is there for protecting European Union from Russia. What do we know on this story? There seems to be not necessarily an escalation, I would say, but a heating up. And some things are at the level of have not been since the Cold War, actually. But Russia is making note and commentary that the NATO forces are off their coast uh, 20, 30 kilometers. So it's a acceptable range, but their presence is there and noted, uh, especially in the Barents Sea, which is in the Arctic Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. But uh, you would see that the United States and, and NATO are simply responding in kind to Russian uh, patrols and so forth. So this uh, surveillance of each country and letting the other country know of their presence, uh, this is uh, in a higher pace than earlier. 
John, this week I was looking at some of the press releases coming out of the European Union, and one of the headlines was this, that Europe is out of the loop as it relates to the new Middle East. I imagine they're talking about these peace agreements with the Arab nations, but what do we know about that? Exactly. It's a continuation. The Trump administration and the peace plan has brought now new peace accords between the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Israel. Yet the EU is sort of staunchly staying on their previous positions. They haven't had any part in the emergence of some of these agreements. And so they are, appear to be irrelevant in this sense, which of course would annoy them further. Then we have the situation with Turkey, of course, uh, becoming more aggressive, and the European Union cannot necessarily even agree on how to deal with that. Yes, that's interesting that you mentioned Turkey there. Let me ask the question about the fact that I understand as Europe weakens, Turkey is becoming stronger. They're coming to power more than really the EU would like them to do. Can you comment on that, please? Yes, Turkey absolutely is taking advantage of this European Union disunity. And even now with the EU summit that's coming ahead, you know, they're taking a chance. They have created now the field to make their demands because the European Union is so disunited. So we have, of course, the situation with Turkey and Greece, uh, France and Turkey over the situation in Libya. But just this is an incredible illustration here that Greece became so frustrated because they were uh, vetoed for uh, sanctions against Turkey by six European Union member states. And so in retaliation, actually, Greek was the sole dissenter that vetoed the EU sanctions against Belarus. And so... Just one country can change the decisions right now in the European Union. But what we'll see eventually is there must be, for this continuation, uh, there needs to be an EU central power and authority. It may not be the United States of Europe as we know it now with 27, but a core of nations is very, very likely so that they can continue to uh, operate. Folks, if you were eavesdropping on this conversation that I'm having with John Rude, you have to recognize every single player that we've talked about and what John just brought to our attention is a part of the stage setting for the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word to be fulfilled. John, a great report, great insight. It helps us to understand the times in which we are living. Thank you so much, John. We'll have another conversation next week. Thank you very much, as always, and a great birthday shout-out to you, Jimmy. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. That's very kind, dear brother. Thank you. Very important report from John Rood, his European Union update, when John looks at the political activities of the European Union. And we look then into the future, how the European Union, at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, will bring about that revived Roman Empire. The prophetic will be fulfilled, politics leading to the prophetic. Well, right now, I want to focus on an issue that is of a concern to me, maybe to you as well. I'm talking about Muslims in the political arena. 
And when we talk about the Islamic world, there's one man who's an expert, a former Muslim who is now a Christian, a minister of the gospel, has his own ministry. We'll get that from him in a moment. He can give us his website. But he comes from Iran. He was born, and in his early years, his father and mother moved here to the United States. We're talking about Sharam Hadian, and he's a dear friend and also a broadcast partner with us. Sharam, give your website to our friends in the name of your ministry. Uh, thank you, Dr. Young, for having me on. The name of our ministry is Truth in Love Ministry, Truth in Love Ministry, and our website is TIL which is the acronym for Truth and Love, then the word project.com. So T-I-L project.com. And I would suggest you bookmark that location on the website that you go to often. It's very key. He has great information there, and I want you to know it. And even the title of the ministry, Truth and Love, here is a former Muslim is endeavoring to try to win Muslims to Jesus Christ, but also at the same time, to give the body of Christ information about the Muslim world. Well, Sharam, I said in the introduction, wanted to look at Muslims in the political arena. And the reason, uh, several reasons, one of them was a recent report on voting corruption in the race in Minnesota for the election of the probably best-known Muslim in the House of Representatives, Omar, Representative Omar. What do you know about that story? Is it true, is it real, or is it propaganda? Well, Dr. DeYoung, I'm so glad you asked that question about what is happening in Minnesota's 5th District, Congressional District, with Ilhan Omar, because, you know, the other night in the debate... The president brought up the concerns about mail-in voting and the potential for fraud. And one of the things that is happening there in Minnesota, and there was a video that's actually out by Project Veritas that shows very, very powerful evidence from firsthand eyewitnesses in the Somali community that her campaign is engaging in political fraud, in campaign fraud, and uh, specifically, Dr. Young, that they are using the idea of what's called ballot harvesting or ballot collecting, and they're using it to basically get votes her way. The video is very powerful. The evidence is very powerful that they're actually going into the Somali community, and they're victimizing their own people to vote one way. They're going to people, and they're giving them money for their ballots. These are ballots that are sent by absentee, or in some cases, when they go to these people's homes, they tell them, have you received your ballot? If they have, they tell them how to vote. They actually tell them, you're going to vote for Ilhan Omar, or they'll take their ballot and they'll fill it out themselves. And there's a part of the video shows this Muslim gentleman, name is Laban, who is actually has 300 ballots in his car, and these are open ballots that he's delivering for Ilhan Omar. Dr. Young, this is not the first time that someone like Ilhan Omar has committed fraud uh, we know that she committed fraud, immigration fraud, by marrying her brother, uh, claiming that it was her husband. We know that there is fraud in her campaign with the use of campaign funds. She had an affair with her campaign manager. This is what is going on, and this is the concern when Muslims are getting involved in office and then joining with the Socialist Democrats to do whatever they can to cheat their way to power and this is why the president's so concerned, and this is why we should be so concerned about our voting integrity. You know, it's interesting to me that you give us this report. 
because when you look at the facts of the candidates that are running for office, both at the local, state, and national level this year, there are a number of Muslims doing that. You think this is going to be a practice by all the Muslim candidates who are running for office, or it's just a one-time deal? No, I I absolutely do not believe it's a one-time deal. I can't say every single one, but I think that certainly in these communities, you're going to see it in Michigan among the Arab population. You're going to see it, you're seeing it in Minnesota, both at the state level and at the local level among the Somali Muslim population. You're going to see in other parts of the country because what they're doing is they're actually victimizing their own people. You know, it's interesting. I was, when I watched the video, I thought, here are all these Somali Muslims that have left Somalia, which is a country in chaos and turmoil and corruption and bribery, just like I witnessed in my birth country of Iran, there's no election integrity in those countries. Here they come to the United States, supposedly for freedom, and they're being victimized in their own communities where they're being told how to vote, and if they don't, there's reprisal, plus the video shows that they were getting money. So absolutely, it's a major concern, not only among Muslims, but among Democrats specifically, that there is going to be fraud with these absentee ballots. I think the president is absolutely right. He's asked the Justice Department to investigate this, but we have just over a month till the election, and this is a major concern for, again, voter integrity. So we got to pray. we got to have people show up. And one of the things the president said the other night is, if people have time, show up at the polling booth. Show up and say, I'm here to volunteer to be an observer so we can observe and make sure we have integrity. But, Dr. Young, this has got to be investigated. And as I said, for Ilhan Omar, for Keith Ellison, for Rashida Taleb in Michigan, and for Muslims running at the local level, in many cases, this is not new, where they intimidate their own communities. Even if it's not ballot fraud, they intimidate their communities to how to vote, to how to vote either for the Muslim or for the Democrat Party. Sharam, I have also noticed not only that there are many candidates, Muslim candidates, running for office this year, both at the, as we've already mentioned, local, state, and national level, but there are many previous candidates who have been elected are holding office already around the United States. Now, I understand Islam has a desire to put together a worldwide caliphate, Do you believe that that possibly could be the reason for many Muslims coming into the political arena and to consider the possibility of overthrowing America? Is that a viable possibility? It it is a viable possibility, and what's viable, very viable right now, is the fact that they're trying to get to the upper house or that house where they can then dominate and overthrow to change the, the, the current system of government. It's very viable that it's going to happen very soon in Minnesota, in Michigan, in some other local areas. Certainly nationally, they still have some work to do. But, Dr. Young, the reason that's a concern is because under Islamic ideology, Islam is not, and this is where people, again, get it so wrong, Islam is not just a religion. It is a political system. It is a governmental system. And Sharia, their law, must be superior. And one of the things you see when these Muslims get elected is they began to, particularly in areas where they have heavy concentrations, like in Cedar Riverside in Minneapolis with the Somali community, or like in Dearborn, Michigan, and other places, Hamtramck, they began to push for implementation of Sharia in those areas. Sharia is antithetical to our U.S. Constitution. Sharia is antithetical to our First Amendment, our Bill of Rights. The, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, by their own language, says it is our duty to sabotage, it is our mission to sabotage your miserable house and establish Islam. This is their goal, and this is why 
Uh, we, we need to call this out. This is sedition. This is treason. This is not just political viewpoint. And so I'm very concerned. By the way, the Muslim Brotherhood started a political party in 2016 called the USCMO, the United States Council of Muslim Organizations. They, we don't understand. They have their own political party now. And this is why they're doing this Muslim blue wave and they're, uh, they're, they're touting that they have now this year, they have hundreds, hundreds of candidates running at all levels of government. And when they get elected, and especially when they get elected and they get sworn in on the Quran, I mean, this is outrageous that they're not swearing in on the Bible. They're swearing in on the Quran. This is against our Constitution, and it must be pointed out. They have to be exposed when they're running, and everybody's afraid of Islamophobia. Well, listen, folks, if we love this republic and our nation, we have to call it out. I'm not, I'm not trying to blanket every Muslim, but, but when you see the level of corruption in the, these candidacies, when you have Keith Ellison in Minnesota praising Antifa, and his son on the city council in Minneapolis praising Antifa, this is a problem. They're calling for revolution, and they're siding with BLM and Antifa and all these groups. We have a problem on our hands, and we got to politically engage and spiritually engage if we want to save this republic. And that's the, exactly the reason that I wanted to bring Sharam Haiti into this broadcast table, for you to hear the report he has just given us. Very key to our understanding, especially not only prophecy, but in light of the election season in which we're in. Sharam, thank you so very much, my good friend. Appreciate it. We'll come back to you for additional information down the line. Thank you, buddy. God bless. God bless, Dr. Young. And happy birthday, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, We've got one more broadcast partner, David James, standing by. That's in our last half hour, all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy Young, and welcome back to Prophecy Today, moving into our third half hour. If you give me three half hours every week, 90 minutes, I'll give you the world. We'll look at current events in light of biblical prophecy. We have one more broadcast partner, David James. He's standing by. He'll be here at the broadcast table in a moment. I want you to answer my poll question, if you will. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. On the left-hand column, if you scroll down, you'll find the poll question, and here it is. In my conversations with David Dolan and Winky Madad, I spoke with them about the Feast of Tabernacles, the last of the seven Jewish feast days. Did you realize that in the kingdom to come, all of us, we Christians, all of us, will go once a year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles as foretold in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 and 19. Be sure to answer my poll question at prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I, on a weekly basis, come together on the radio to have a conversation about an issue that is confronted with a biblical perspective by both of us so that you can hear what we have to say, appropriate our comments if they're biblically correct, and then have the way to live your life 
in light of what God's Word would tell you to do. So glad to be able to have these conversations. And David, actually, before we get into our main topic, which is, of course, going to be focused on the nominee for the Supreme Court to fill the vacancy there from the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we had an email from a listener that was wondering about the timing of the Lord's overall program after he read in Second Peter chapter 3 that Peter said, a thousand years is like a day with the Lord. Can you give interaction to this broadcaster who sent the email in? Sure, we'd be happy to. Here's what he wrote and his question. He says, we have a six-day creation and a one-day rest. Would that reflect a one day as 1,000 years and a 1,000 years as a day scenario? Can we say that in the Hebrew year, 6,000 will be the millennium? The Jewish world says we are in the year 5781. Can Dave James help me with his thinking? Thanks. Enjoy your show. So once again, thanks for this email, and Second Peter 3.8 says this, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Then back in verses 3 and 4 we read, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? So Peter's point is that people will mock the idea of Christ's return because Christians have been talking about this for some 2,000 years. In the latter days, they will mock it because it's been such a long time. But then Peter also says this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished. And what that means is when God promises judgment, it will happen whether people mock the idea or not, or whether they think that it's been a long time and so it won't happen. So it's been about 6,000 years since the creation using a biblical chronology, and of course the millennium is 1,000 years for a total of 7,000 years, which sounds like a biblical number, and it could happen this way, but we can't use Peter's statement to prove that. When Peter writes about a day being 1,000 years and vice versa, in context, he's not setting up a mathematical formula to be able to calculate God's calendar. Rather, he's saying that what seems like a long time to us is irrelevant to God. Great answer, David. And in fact, that's exactly what I would have said. But God's Word is absolute on what you have just reported to us. Well, David, let's move to our main topic which is President Trump's pick for the next Supreme Court justice after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. First, I think it would be helpful to talk about the function of the Supreme Court in our judicial system and what we call the balance of power in our constitutional republic. Well, Jimmy, I guess it's time for a bit of a civics lesson, but I promise I'll stay out of the weeds on this. Our Constitution does call for a representative republic, which provides for three co-equal branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and judicial branches. And as you mentioned, uh, it's this separation of powers that's the bedrock of our political system, and I would say also it has social and cultural implications in many many ways. Uh, the legislative branch 
which is responsible for writing the laws, and this is a two-phase process with the House of Representatives writing the laws and the Senate passing those laws. Then the president, who represents the executive branch, either signs those bills into law or vetoes them, and then the laws are enforced by law enforcement agencies, even including the military over which he is the commander-in-chief. Then the judicial branch decides whether laws have been broken and assesses penalties and consequences if they are. And so the court system actually gets pretty complicated, but in simple terms, state courts judge cases involving laws passed by the states, federal courts judge cases involving federal laws or those that cross state lines, and then the Supreme Court generally determines the constitutionality of a given law, and so it's the court of last appeal. Hey, David, that was a good Civics 101 course. Appreciate it. Very concise and right up to target on what it is all about. Well, before, David, we get to the president's nominee, what can you tell us about Justice Ginsburg and her legacy as a Supreme Court justice? Well, Ginsburg was an associate justice of the Supreme Court from 1993 until her death a couple of weeks ago. She was nominated by Bill Clinton to the court, and although she was later viewed as part of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court, when nominated, she was generally viewed as a moderate consensus builder. She was the first Jewish woman and only the second woman on the court after Sandra Day O'Connor, and her legacy from the work she did throughout much of her legal career was that of an advocate for gender equality and women's rights, and she won many arguments before the Supreme Court in uh, related decisions. And An article in uh, The Guardian asked the question, what's at stake? Uh, this is concerning her passing and the opening on the Supreme Court, and they answered with this reproductive rights, voting rights, protections from discrimination, the future of criminal justice, the power of the presidency, the rights of immigrants, tax rules and laws, and health care for millions of vulnerable Americans, to name a few issues. Every big issue in American life is on the line. And I would add, personally, I would add uh, First and Second Amendment issues as well. Those are also on the line. And her personal views on these issues is why the Democrats and liberals in general are so upset that President Trump is getting yet a third pick, a third nomination for a Supreme Court justice after successfully nominating Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, now, David, let's uh, turn our attention to Amy Coney Barrett. Who is she, first of all, and why was she the one President Trump picked to replace Ginsburg as the next court justice? Well, if she's approved by the Senate, which seems inevitable, at 48 years old, she will be the youngest member of the Supreme Court. Uh, Stephen Breyer, who is 82, is currently the oldest. And uh, she marks a dramatically conservative shift in the court, leaving only Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor as liberal justices. Roberts has often been the swing boat on decisions and sometimes considered a conservative. Unfortunately, he's often taken the more liberal side in those splits. And then there's Alito and Gorsuch, who tend conservative, with Thomas and Kavanaugh being the most conservative. So Barrett would likely join Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh with a conservative philosophy of Supreme Court rulings. A recent NBC article noted this about her. Barrett, 
48, serves on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago, appointed in 2017 by Trump and confirmed by a Senate vote of 55 to 43, with only three Democrats backing her. Before that, she worked briefly in private practice and then taught for 15 years at Notre Dame Law School, where she earned her law degree. So, Jimmy, Amy Coney Barrett is a devout Catholic who has said that Antonin Scalia was a mentor who had tremendous influence on her, and she has the backing of many evangelicals because she's seen as, a, as likely voting in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. David, you and I both know that one of the things we often hear in the discussion about the Supreme Court is the matter of legislating from the bench. Now, how does that play into the mix when we have a liberal president in the White House versus a conservative one in the White House? Well, legislating from the bench is actually a negative concept because it means deviating from the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution. Legislation is supposed to be an exclusive function of Congress, while the function of the Supreme Court should technically be limited to ruling on the constitutionality of those laws and of how they're applied or enforced. However, there is overlap in our three-branch system, so there isn't perfect separation. So, for example, the president can issue executive executive orders, which is legislation designed to bypass Congress, and while those are limited, they can uh, have a powerful impact. The Supreme Court is supposed to be an impartial body, but everyone obviously has their own uh, personal political, social, and moral, and, and I would say ethical views, and it's really humanly impossible to completely set those aside when somebody puts on their robes. And, and beyond that, there are two basic philosophies concerning the Constitution that comes in to play. The liberal view is that the Constitution is a living, breathing document that must be continually interpreted and applied in a way that reflects changing values and norms as society and culture evolve. The conservative view, on the other hand, is what is referred to as the originalist approach, and that means that the Constitution is a fixed document that should be understood and interpreted according to the original intent of the framers. And it's similar to the discussion between liberal and conservative interpretations of the Bible. David, I would say that probably all of our listeners recognize we're in an election year, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. How can you not miss that fact? However, how does thinking about the Supreme Court and actually the court system in general affect how a believer, a born-again Christian, should vote or whether they should vote at all, since many conservative Christians don't really want to vote for either of the presidential candidates that we have up this year? Well, let's think about my last point concerning the Bible and the difference between liberal and conservative interpretations of the Bible. Jimmy, you and I see the message of the Bible as inspired, fixed, and unchanging, and so the moral and ethical standards we find in the Bible don't change over time, even though society does change. This means our interpretation doesn't change because it's based on absolutes. That's the conservative approach. Second, the framers of the Constitution quite intentionally incorporated a lot of biblical principles, what is often called the Judeo-Christian ethic, into the Constitution, and they saw those as absolute truths that had been revealed by God. And so their intent was for our country to be forever guided by those principles, and that's why we as conservatives want originalist justices on the Supreme Court. And because of the philosophical differences between liberal and conservative 
justices regarding the Constitution, liberal justices will inevitably legislate from the bench more so than conservative. And so that's why it's important for believers to vote. Even if they don't like a particular candidate, we're also voting for a given platform and the many candidates down ballot from the president, because statistics show that two-thirds of all people vote straight tickets. And if we don't vote, we're disenfranchising ourselves and reducing our influence as salt and light in a dark world, which in this country is a God-given right and responsibility. Yes, indeed, David, it is a franchise that we as born-again Christians have. We need to vote. The Lord uses that vote in order to set in place a political leader, Romans chapter 13. Hey, David, thanks. This was great. Thanks for the research, the insight, and I believe this will be an assist to us as born-again Christians as to how to consider and then make our vote. Thank you so much, and we'll have another conversation next week focused on another issue. I'll look forward to it, Jimmy. Thank you. We're going to take a break when I come back. I'm going to open up my Bible. We're going to look at the reports from our broadcast partners. And I'm going to take a look at the book and see how all of this fits in. My prophetic perspective on these news reports upcoming right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Today on Prophecy Today Weekend, my broadcast partners gave us in-depth reports on current events happening around the world. Now, these were reports and insight that you and I will not hear on mainstream media. 
They were very important reports that will help us to understand the times in which we're living and the urgency of the moment in which we're living as well. By the way, if you had to miss any of these reports, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There you'll find all of these reports archived, waiting for you to listen to them when it is convenient for you to do that. And please do me a favor, tell a family member or a friend about these reports. These were excellent reports. I want everybody to hear what these men had to say. I want to take a moment, if you'll allow me right now, to give you my prophetic perspective on these excellent reports. Ken Timmerman focuses on geopolitical activities in our world, and we began Ken's report talking about the president who has tested positive for coronavirus, the first lady as well. Now, dear friends, this is a very sad report for our nation. Do me a favor. The Bible calls in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, for each and every one of us that are Christians to, first of all, pray for those in higher authority. I would pray that you would be praying for our president and God's perfect will in his life. By the way, what is happening with the president and the first lady is tangible evidence of what Jesus Christ referred to in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7, when he mentioned pestilence. Pestilence is pandemic disease. Now, Jesus was talking about the tribulation period, which comes after the rapture of the church and is a seven-year-long judgment upon the earth. That's not what we're seeing the fulfillment of, Matthew 24, verse 7, and what Jesus said about pestilence. This today is a precursor of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus Christ gave us. David Dolan focuses on the Middle East with his Middle East News update. We talked about the celebration of tabernacles in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, of course, is the location on this, a pilgrim feast day, where all Jews are to go and celebrate the seven-day feast of tabernacles. It's the last of the seven Jewish feasts given to the Jewish people in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Normally, the celebration will take place with thousands of Christians who will gather from all around the world in Jerusalem to be a part of that celebration. Because of the coronavirus lockdown in Israel and in many other locations around the world, these Christians will not be in Jerusalem for that celebration this year. But they do look forward to what's going to happen in the kingdom to come. You might remember that Zechariah the prophet, chapter 14, verses 16 and 19, said that in the kingdom, which will be set up when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth on an annual basis, all the world's population will go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, we talked with Winky Madad. 
He came to the broadcast table to tell us how the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles today. In fact, what they do is they build a hut, a tabernacle, or it's referred to as a sukkah or a booth. It's the same type of booth or sukkah that the Jewish people, when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, would live in as they traveled during that time. Well, that's exactly what they do. And remember, Jesus fulfills these last three fall feasts. On Feast of Trumpets, he'll come back, second coming, not the rapture. On Yom Kippur, he goes into the Holy of Holies of the temple he has built. And on the Feast of Tabernacles in the future, the kingdom will begin when Jesus Christ will go into the throne room there in the temple and rule and reign forever. That's Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. John Rood gave us his update on the European Union. Basically, we talked about the fact that the European Union is out of the loop as it relates to the new Middle East. European Union doesn't understand the U.S. and Israel on Iran. They don't understand the Arab Peace Accords. But I've got to tell you, the European Union is essential because they are the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 24. And then Sharam Hadian talked to us about Muslims in the U.S. political arena and their effort to overthrow the United States. You know, Muslims are what the Quran, their holy book, says they are. If they do not live by the Quran, they are not Muslims. And the Quran calls for a worldwide caliphate, a caliphate, a worldwide kingdom. Well, that's why the Muslims are here in the United States getting involved in the political arena in order to set up that worldwide caliphate, which is called for by their holy book, the Quran. David James and I talked about the Supreme Court justice nominated by President Trump. She's an originalist, which means that she will interpret the Constitution by looking at it and understanding the intent of the Founding Fathers. One of the issues she'll have to deal with is abortion. And I can guarantee you the Constitution of the United States does not call for murder of unborn children. Amy Coney Barrett will indeed interpret the Constitution as the Founding Fathers intended. Now, all of these reports, excellent reports from our broadcast partners, are tangible evidence of the fact that we are living in the last days. What we need to determine is what is God's plan for the last days. Well, these activities that we were talking about will be fulfilled ultimately in the seven-year tribulation period. And before that time begins, the rapture is going to take place. What's the rapture? Jesus shouts, archangel shouts, trumpet God sounds, and we're caught up to meet him in the air. That's the rapture. Dear friend, I hope and pray you are prepared for that rapture because it could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.